I would say tonight as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be that for which you test all things to be true or false. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 15, we are now packing up and making our way to Jerusalem. I remind you that at least 14 different places, um, Paul has been warned that trains, trains, <laughs> maybe trains, but chains and tribulation await them. Oh, him specifically. And now with chains and tribulations, oh, it's going to be a fun night, I can see that already. With chains and tribulations awaiting Paul, he has um, said already, he goes bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. And he says, what do you mean by saying these things and breaking my heart? I'm willing, or literally, I'm ready to not just be bound for the name of Jesus Christ, but also to be killed for his name. And so it says then that, that's verse 13. Verse 14 says, so then when he would not be persuaded. And you kind of get the idea that Paul's the kind of guy that when he makes up his mind, there's no changing it. The good news about that is that God could take such an individual and use it for his glory. That man was unchangeable in regards to his faith. And I want to tell you, that's an awesome thing. He didn't seem to be mamby-pamby when it came down to those moments when he thought somebody might give him a cross look. But rather, he continued to, he stuck to his gun. So it says in verse 15, <coughs> And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And imagine the foreboding attitude we would all have knowing. Paul's got at least seven traveling companions with him, including Luke, by the way, the writer of this book. Notice the we in that statement. And get the idea, we just kind of know, we wonder when it is Paul's going to get nailed. We don't know how, we just know that somehow Paul's going to get arrested, he's going to get handcuffed in essence, and he's going to get beat up. And how do you feel? Do, which one of you wants to hang out with Paul in a moment like that? Do you kind of think, if I'm going to hang out with Paul, I might get beat too? If you're the kind of person that's quick for a fight, do you, you kind of spend your time ready? But what if it is something like that? And I wonder... How many of those guys were similar to Jesus' disciples back in the garden when he told them, don't sleep, guys, please. This is my last night. This is a loose paraphrase. Please don't fall asleep on me. And I, I get the idea, and I can tell you only from looking at it from my finite eyes, that Jesus, like any human being, didn't want to go to the cross by the idea of the experience. And thus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane if there be any other way. So please understand that as a Christian, we are spitting on the cross of Christ to say that Jesus is a way. When Jesus begged the Father if there be any other way, Please don't send me to the cross. What kind of loving father would unnecessarily send his son to be tortured to death if there were other options out there? And Jesus made that really clear. Think about that. But that could upset someone. Well, but it's the truth, and the truth upsets. And what we're going to see is we talked a bit about walls last week, and we're going to see a bit of that in this text as well. We're going to see in this, by the way, how imperative it is that we not just have a good defense, but it's imperative that we have a great offense. The church has ceased to be 
in mass offensive to anyone but Jesus in many ways. We've, offensive, we've ceased to be offensive to the world because we really don't want people's shoes to get a little unraveled, toes to get stepped on, and people to get upset. Which, by the way, insults our Savior, who hung in, naked and bled to death, bled and suffocated to death on a cross. And it tells us, by the way, in Scripture, that if we're ashamed of him, that he'll be ashamed of us. And the word means to shrink back. Here's the danger as we get into our text. Well, let me put it in a way that, that I, it makes sense to me. How many of you know what the game tetherball is? How many of you know that game? Any of you? It's not necessarily a European game. There's probably another name for it here. A big pole, a rope, and a ball on the end of it. And the goal is to get that thing wound around. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Okay, does, what's that called here? Is that called anything else? No one knows. Okay, well, does everyone sort of get the concept? Big pole with a rope, and there's a ball on the end of it. And there are two people on opposing sides, and the goal is to get the, the ball to spin around until, until that rope is kind of completely wrapped around it. Now, I was a, I was a lifeguard for a while in uh, the area outside of Chicago. I was about 15, 16 years old. And there was a kid. Now, now you kind of get the idea that a game like that favors the tall. Because the goal is to try to get that over the person's head so you can keep getting it spinning around in your way so that you can win the game. But there was this tiny little kid that was sort of king of the court. And that didn't make any sense to me. And so when I could see people go over there and then sooner or later I'd watch them come walking away disgruntled. And of course you don't know whether they're walking away that way because they just lost or what. And so I went over there one day to play the kid just out of sheer curiosity, if nothing else, and probably pride, because I wasn't saved yet. And of course, as you're probably aware of, I'm very proud of the fact I've gotten rid of all my pride at the cross. All right, well, anyways. <coughs> well, so I get over there, and there's this kid, he's half my height by this point, and it's like he got it, grabs it, and he spins it, and you, you block it, and he goes, no, 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 you can't do that. And I go, well, what do you mean you can't do that? Of course i got to be able to block you. He goes, no, 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 you can't block the first throw. That's the new rule. I'm like, well, who made that rule? He goes, well, I made that rule, but that's the way, that's the court rules. So I went and spun it around once, and I hit it. He goes, oh, you can't do it now because it spun around once without me touching it. And here was the idea, is the kid kept changing the rules so much that it didn't matter who he played. He could have played a professional tetherball player in the end, which, like, there is such a thing, because he was so busy changing the rules that he was going to be able to win no matter what the case was. And the problem was... The only, you know, they, I was 15, I was unsafe, so the only thing left to do was beat him up. But I'm, I'm not saying that's right. I'm actually saying that's wrong. But the, the whole point of it is, is that if you're in that place, if you're in that place where somebody feels like they have the right to make all the rules, they don't make them for them to lose. They make them for them to win. And that becomes the danger when the church feels like the necessary thing is to be on the defense. Because what you're doing is you're handing the ball to the world and saying, tell me what it's going to take for you to come to church but not be offended. Tell me what it's going to take for you to not hate me for my Christianity. Tell me what it's going to take for you to actually think I'm, I could be cool and a Christian. Popular and a Christian. Socially acceptable and a Christian. Well, I warn you, when that happens... The rules will be made to remove the one offensive thing. And by the way, does anyone know what the offensive thing about Christianity is? Jesus. 
If you remove Jesus, Christianity, which by the way at that point is eanity, which is really close to insanity, but in the end of it all, when you remove Jesus, all that's left is we're a social club, that we do nice things, we feed poor people, we strengthen this, we, we have all these little things we do that nobody seems to be offended by. But the moment we put Jesus in, Jesus said, blessed is he who is not offended by me. But if you read the stories in the Gospels, you kind of get the idea Jesus had no problem giving it to you straight and giving it to you in a way that if it offended, with, it offended you, deal with it, at least you knew it. And it's in, it's, it drives you mental when you get to that point where somebody's so busy trying not to offend you, it's offensive because they don't even tell you anything anymore. It's like you're sugar-coated something, and by the time you bite into it, all that's left is the sugar-coating. It's like there should have been something in this, right? And the reason I say that is, is tonight we're going to see what happens when you spend all your time, actually, when you get put in that place of defense. Now again, please understand, I don't want to build some giant case against apologetics and archaeology and all those things, but they are not offensive weapons. The offensive weapon, according to to the, the, um, according to the Bible, the offensive weapon is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that weapon is so offensive that it kicks down the gates of hell and invites people out. And that would be offensive. Now, if your mother was taken captive by some radical terrorist group, could you imagine saying, I don't want to see my mom rescued because I might offend the terrorists? That's where we're at. Our loved ones, beloved, our friends and our family have been taken captive. And we're busy trying to kind of, kind of square dance with the terrorists. Instead of saying, you're done. And you know what? I'm a boy. And I'm sure that shouldn't surprise you. I hope, hopefully not. And you know, I was raised on those movies where guys kind of come into the place and they take it over. And they're, I mean, and those guys were heroes in our younger days. And one of the reasons was because they just didn't, they had a spine. And they went in and they were like, look at, they were going to rescue that person at whatever cost. And we, I mean, as, as a boy, I remember going, I want to be like that. And now God's like, look it, you can be like that in the most important area there is. But imagine, like, no, we cannot come in with guns because that would offend someone. We can't come in and say, let my people go. Hey, look it, these people are God's people. He wants them back. And we are the only hope, beloved, because we are the ones who carry the cross of Jesus Christ. So here we are, we're going to Jerusalem. What do you think? Do you want to hang close to Paul? Do you distance yourself from Paul? Because you never really know whether or not, when he's going to get jumped, what that's going to look like. But the idea of him getting arrested means he's not just going to get beat up by an angry mob of people, but somehow, well, the government's going to be involved. Ordinary people don't arrest people, unless they're delusional. Usually the government has to be involved for that. So the idea that chains await you, tells me that there's something more to this than just, you're going to get beat up. Now, this is going to be fundamental as we start to think about what happens to Paul later in his life. When he talks about getting arrested and sent to Rome, and he says, you know, I know in those, those days when I had to stand before Caesar, nobody stood with me. There gets to be this point where really, he's alone again. And there are people that are like, you know what, this is just too much. I don't want to be in this position. 
In verse 16, it says, Now, some of the disciples from Caesarea, that was our last stop. Remember, we were at Philip the Evangelist's house. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went up with us and brought with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom, with whom we were to lodge. This guy's our, our meal ticket to where to stay. It's the Manasseh B&B in Jerusalem. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren greeted us gladly. Now, I'm going to remind you, the moment you get into Jerusalem, now, I don't know about you, but the moment I step foot into Jerusalem, I'm looking. How about you? If you knew that in at least 14 different places, including the show-and-tell prophet that shows up and hog-ties himself with Paul's belt, that Paul is going to get arrested in Jerusalem, which one of you walks into it thinking, doop 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 doo it's going to be another happy day in Jerusalem? I mean, the moment I set foot near Jerusalem, my eyes are open, and I'm looking, I'm looking. And, and I don't know, to be honest, I'm just going to be honest with you, I don't even know if my reason for being that alert would be to see whether or not I want to protect Paul or run from it. But in this situation, I would be in that. And what's interesting is, Paul, this isn't going to happen for at least a week. So get the idea here that that's like a whole week, seven days of just, you try to sleep well knowing that Paul's going to get arrested and beat one of these days. And he says, when I get there somewhere, all I know is that when I arrive in Jerusalem, chains and tribulation await me, which, by the way, means... It isn't going to be like, well, on one of these trips to Jerusalem, somewhere on this one. But now, how soon before you go, well, maybe it's the next trip. We got to Jerusalem. The brothers received us gladly. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us, notice the us again, to James and all the elders who were present. By the way, for what it's worth, and I challenge you to prove me wrong on this, but do it by simply discerning Scripture, not contriving it seems to me that the guy that's in charge in Jerusalem is not Peter. It seems like the guy, if there's any sort of figurehead, it would actually be James, who, by the way, at this point happens to be the half-brother of Jesus because James, that was the brother of John, was murdered in Acts 12. Now, as far as Peter is concerned, according to Galatians, by the way, where Peter really gets it hard by Paul, because Peter kind of did one of those sort of primary school lunchroom games, where he was sitting with a bunch of the Gentiles, but when a bunch of the guys from the Jews that showed up from Jerusalem came to Antioch, he kind of bailed on their table and he wouldn't hang out with those weird kids anymore and he hung out with the popular kids in Jerusalem. And Paul stands up and he calls him on. He goes, hey, 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 how come if you live like a Gentile everywhere else, now all of a sudden you're going to act like some sort of a hardcore Orthodox? Well, it's interesting because what Paul does say though in Galatians 2.8 is that Peter had a specific responsibility to do to the Jew what Paul was doing to the Gentile, which was to evangelize. That was Peter's primary goal. Ironic for a guy that later on is going to be adulated as the first head of the entire church. But not scripturally. Scripturally, Peter's supposed to be out there preaching the gospel to any person with a yarmulke on, while Paul is out there supposed to be preaching the gospel to anyone that isn't wearing such a thing. Now, with that in mind, it says then, following day, Paul went in with James, that's where we got that from, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, notice the them now, he told in detail those things in which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, Now, here's Paul. He's saying, let me tell you what's going on. This is a little bit of a mission report. People in Thessalonica are getting saved. People in Berea are getting saved. People in Philippi are getting saved. They are throwing their idols down in, in Ephesus, burning 
years worth of salaries worth of, of uh, uh, witchcraft books all in a fire because they recognize the only real, true power of the universe is the living, risen Jesus Christ. And I mean, you, man, if you could see all of this. Now, that's on one side. And they look at, now, which one of you would go, that's awesome. I want to be a part of that. Well, the response is, well, yeah, that's great. Verse 20. But then they said to him, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews who, are, who have believed... And they are zealous for the law. Now, this is where we kind of left off last week, but I want to kind of pull into this. All of a sudden, something weird has happened in the Jerusalem church. There has become a dichotomy. Now, there's supposed to be. There's supposed to be a wall between two groups of people in a church, but that wall is supposed to always have the gate of Jesus Christ. Now, the two different groups of people, those who've said yes to Jesus and those who haven't. Though, by the way, can I dare say that I might even go as far as those who are still saying no to God, but have said yes to him once before, but now are walking in disobedience to him. Because on one side, there are those that are hardening themselves from the call of God, from the love that he has, and from his Holy Spirit in their life. And there are those that are seeking to surrender. So there are those who are seeking to fight, and there are those who are seeking to surrender. But in the end of it all, on the side of God, it's whether or not you've said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, as Jesus asked, if there's any other way. Well, if there's not, then Jesus is the only choice. And you know what? I don't have a problem telling you. He is. And it's like, you say, well, what about, what about, let me just say this. What about you? You're in this room. God made this clear. What have you done with it? And all of a sudden now, James is like, well, I, I, I love the miracle stuff. That's really cool. And people are going to say, that's cool. I and mean, I love the fact you're doing Gentile stuff. Right on, Paul. But there's these other guys here. And well, they, they kind of have a problem with, they, they have a problem with your dreads. They kind, of, they kind of have a problem with your hair. They have a problem with your tats. They have a problem with the fact you're bald. They have a problem with the fact you don't wear a suit. They have a problem with the fact that you don't come in with holy oil, that you don't stick your hand in the dish and, and do the cross. Just, they, have, they have a problem with the fact that you wear earrings and you have piercings. And you have, do you get it? But the problem is, beloved, let me just say you can flip that coin too. You can go to one of those churches, and I, this is just fun. If you want to go to one of those churches where everybody does have a tattoo, try to go there with a tie and see what happens to you. It'll be the same thing. They'll say, you know, if you come in and go, let me just tell you what the Lord's doing, and he's saving people, and God's doing awesome stuff, and you go, well, man, that's really, really, really cool, but um, I'm not really sure about the tie, bro. Or, you know, it's, that's really cool, but what are, you, what are you doing in that neighborhood? Preaching the gospel. Well, that's really cool, but... They're still kind of not our target. Excuse me, but God didn't so love the clean cut. God didn't so love the businessman. God so loved the world. Can I just dare say, as offensive as I can, God so loved the baby raper. God so loved the mass murderer. God so loved the molester. God so loved the guy who sells drugs to a seven-year-old. God so loves the guy who makes the drugs that sell to the kid that's seven years old. God so loved those people. Do we? Can you hate the sin but love the sinner? Because if you can't, how do we call ourselves Christians, which is supposed to mean Christ-like, when that's where he went? I mean, if we saw Jesus' posse for one minute, 
We don't understand what side we're on. Either we feel we belong in that group, or we feel like we belong in the group that actually would wear the tie and say, hey, 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 we don't want that kind of thing in our church. But let me make something clear. Jesus loves the homosexual as much as he does love the, 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 the mass murderer, as much as he loves you, if you're not that. But in that, Jesus wants to reinvent every one of us. And so there's a part where it says, Jesus will take you for who you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way. <laughs> the question is, are you willing to let him reinvent you? Because if you don't, there's a part of you that's going to get dragged over the cross that's still going to look for party like yourself there and not want to hang out with anybody who isn't like that. And that could happen in any church. In the 50s in America, there were white churches and black churches. And I would have chosen the black church because the music's better. I mean, it's like, you know, there, there's always something. Old church, young church. And in the end of it all, beloved, understand that what James is doing here, I'm just going to say it, is wrong. Because what James is saying is, now look at Dash, Dash I, I, I really love you, bro. But this is like, this is like Southern Irish and, you know, kind of that, that UK thing. And you're Northern Irish. Okay, we'll let you in, but we're going to keep our eye on you. Why, why would you want that? So a girl comes in, and to me, I praise God as long as every person that comes in wants to be changed by Jesus. Does that make sense? So she's 13 and she's pregnant, and she walks into a church like this. My first thought is, praise God! Where would you want her? So the guy comes in, and he's clearly just come from Carnival. Now, granted, look it, we'd still love the guy to leave his beers outside. It isn't like, look it, he's trying to give us an option on communion. In that, he wants to come in. But the point of it is, is that we all go to the cross humble. And if you don't go to the cross humble, dare I say, I don't think you went. How do I stand and say, give me what I've got coming to me at the cross? Because at the cross, that's the place where Jesus hung naked and bleeding so we can look and say, that's what we deserve and we didn't get it. Do you get that? And beloved, this is the cool thing about what God intended in church. What he intended in church was for really, really, really different people to be in the same place. So the rest of the world goes, what in the world is going on there? And the moment that happens, dare I say, it's time to get on the offense. You're not being defensive. That's an opening. Now let me just say, in, in an American football game, and forgive me for using that as an example, but there's a reason for it. When you get the ball, the goal is to keep going, so you look for openings. And that is, since that's your objective and that's your focus, you look for an opening. Or you make an opening if you can't, if you don't see one. Same thing happens in rugby. In essence, the same thing happens in football, in European football. The old difference is you're looking for a clear shot to the goal. And whether that's you and a couple other guys are kind of advancing and you're looking to how to kind of get the pass happening, but sooner or later you want to get to that place where it's like you and the goalie and the goalie's out of position. That would be great because it's important and you're focused. Do you get that? What in the world is our focus? Dare I say, what's important to you, you will be an opportunist in. And if there's a little bit of an opening and Jesus is the important thing, we're going to dive through it. We're not going to go, mm, I'm not too sure about that opening. We think we're blessing someone with that, but we're really just trying to protect ourselves, aren't we? Because if it were important for us, 
we would be trying to make that opening bigger, not waiting for it to be bigger. Now, follow me on this. (coughs) James is now... (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) James says, look it. (coughs) He doesn't say that, but I keep quoting it. (coughs) Notice he says, there are those who believe, but notice he doesn't say they are disciples. He just says there are those who believed. And I kind of get the idea. Remember how we talk about you go from sinner to saved and from saved to student? Well, God didn't intend just for you to get saved. It wasn't like what he wanted was, is like God's like just into the product-oriented, task-oriented thing. You are his thing. Imagine, you know, it's like Annie meets the perfect guy. His name is Floka. Floko, because it's more masculine, right? Floko. And he's just sort of from the Netherlands. He looks like a Viking, covered in hair, giant beard, giant arms, and he dances. And Annie falls head over heels for him. And Floko and her, they go and, and they've walked down the aisle, and finally he proposes, and she says yes, and she wears just this perfect Finnish gown. And here's Floko kind of with his trident, you know, he kind of steps off the ship, you know, with, you know, Otar and Sven and the other guys that are with him that have just pillaged all kinds of wonderful wedding gifts for you. And, <clears throat> and they walk down the aisle, and they stand here, and I'm standing here between Ani and Floko, right? And I'm just, okay, do you take, do you take, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, well, you are now married. You can make kiss the bride. And he kisses her, and then he goes, Tick that box, and off he goes. And then, so, and he's standing at the altar going, that's it? This proposal and all of this stuff that he's done to win my heart was so he could tick a box? That doesn't make any sense, does it? And he didn't hang on a cross. He didn't constantly pursue you in the quiet hours of the night at those moments when you were trying to make the thing happen yourself. And he goes, you know, there's always me. He didn't constantly remind you of that choice at those moments when you were still running from him. But Jesus did. And if you think for a moment that Jesus just dying on a cross was just so that he could tick a box and say, all right, you're saved. You believe that's good enough. When you stood at the altar with Jesus, if you have stood at the altar with Jesus, you said, can I say this way? I do commit to saying I do for the rest of my life. That's what we say at the altar. I commit to commit myself to you for the rest of my life. It isn't like, well, we got that done. Now that I can put marriage status on my tax forms, we're good. These particular, and understand that's what happens, beloved, is that if we start to think that way, we start to think that God's happy because we're saved. But see, Jesus didn't just save us. He betrothed us to him. Jesus didn't die for you to go to send you to heaven. He died for you to be with you. Heaven's just the product. It's just where he lives. Sooner or later, you get to move in. Praise God. But just like any traditional Hebrew situation, they build a house first, and then they go get their bride and take her back. And Jesus even said that. I go prepare a place for you, that where I am, you will be also. And when I'm done, I'll go and gather you to myself. It's just exactly what any Hebrew knew. And if you just think, well, Jesus saved me, that's good enough, you are ripping yourself off just as much as, you know, Floco did, by the way, in that situation. Now, these people, we don't read that they're disciples of Jesus. And by the way, please, please, please hear me. 
you are going to become more and more like what holds your heart. Let me say that again. You are going to become more and more like what holds your heart. And if Jesus holds your heart, you're going to become more like him. And that's not going to, and I'm not saying, well, you can't get a tattoo or a piercing or any of that stuff because Jesus did it. What I'm saying is, is that you'll become more and more concerned about people and less and less concerned about yourself. You'll be more and more concerned about what blesses somebody and less concerned with what you can get away with and still go to heaven. Is this okay? Can I do this? And if so, how much of it can I do before it becomes a sin? That's kind of saying like, well, this is, you know, this is acid. How close do I get to this before it burns me? How about you don't go near it at all because it's caustic? Understand, whatever holds your heart, you're going to become more like. And the moment I said yes to Jesus, I handed him my heart. I said, all right, Lord, what do you want to do with this? I pray to be more like Jesus. There are days where I feel like I really am taking a step back. And I'm like, Lord, can you double the efforts tomorrow? Well, it's me. I know that. You haven't changed. In verse 20, he says, look, let me just say that these are people who, they call themselves believers. But here's the problem. It's Jesus and. Jesus and what? The law. In chapters 11 and 15, there were two debates. The first one was whether or not a Gentile could even be saved. And the second one, well, do they have to become Jewish now that they're Gentiles? Because the mindset of a Gentile, please hear me on this, the mindset of a Jew, I'm sorry, in those days, especially the religious leaders was, the Gentiles were created to fuel hell. Now, we all can agree that's totally wrong. But that still happens in different cultures. You could kind of think, well, God will save people, but you're really going to have to be Serbian now. Okay, you're going to have to be Greek now. You're going to have to be Turkish now. You're going to have to be, if you're really going to be saved. And you're dragging the old man over. These people are like, look, it, we're Jews. We're always going to be Jews. And Jesus, we're going to add to the mix now, like curry. He'll flavor the whole thing, but he's not the main dish. He's still just a spice. Well, these people, they're, well, they're, 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 they're calling themselves believers. They believed, but they're zealous for the law. Verse 21. And, but they have been informed about, that, you see, about you, that you teach all the Jews who are, in, who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. <coughs> well, what then? The assembly certainly must meet, must certainly meet, for they will, they will hear that you've come. Now listen. The idea is really simple. They said, you know, we're going to have to have church. And if you're going to be here and they have church and they know that you've come, this is going to get ugly. Now understand, this is going to get ugly in church. People in the church are going to, I mean, we're going to have to have church. And when we have church, people are going to have a problem with you. And this is what they're saying. Here's the rumor, Paul. And I, I, know, I know it sounds kind of silly. I know, and I, I know this couldn't possibly be you. But, but Lucas, here's the, here's the rumor. The rumor is you're actually telling people that when they come to Jesus, they're, they're just a Christian. That's it. They're just a Christian. And I, I, mean, I, I know that. I know I know you think better. I know you're smarter than that. I know what you really tell people is, well, if you're not Jewish when you started, well, then, you know, well, that's cool. That's cool. So, you know, you could do, you know, here's a couple things to stay away from, things strangled and other things that involve idol, idol practices. But, man, if you're raised religious, you should really make sure you're religious and add Jesus to it. I mean, we're in agreement with that, right? So I, there's a way to kind of appease them. Did you see what just happened? What, and this is a dangerous thing, but what happens is all of a sudden somebody that claims to be doing something kind here throws their arm around you and says, buddy, let me tell you how to get out of this. 
what they're doing is they're actually throwing you right on defense without you even knowing it. Paul has been on the offense for 10 years. He's been preaching. The gospel people have been getting saved. Can you imagine? You're out there on the mission field, preaching the gospel, watching people come to know Jesus. And then you're going to show up at church and go, now you're going to have to defend yourself for what you're doing. Now, what is Paul doing? He's not doing something horrible. That's the amazing thing. It isn't like Paul went out and he got drunk with people. It isn't like Paul went out and he was like preaching Jesus in a strip club. And I, I don't even go there, but the, the, you know, so the point is, is that what Paul, all Paul was doing was, he was telling people who were raised in a religious environment that they need to stay religious, but add Jesus to it. Now, Paul will say, look it, in the end of it all, it's probably wise that you remain kind of where you are in the sense that that's probably what you're going to be familiar with. But Jesus has to be the center of your universe. He doesn't orbit you. You orbit him now. So look, it, so, so do, are we clear on kind of what's going on here? Well, with that then, well, how do we get out of this? Well, notice what he says. Okay, so, so here's James, by the way, the leader of the church, you know. And, <coughs> and it says then, look, it, we're going to meet. So therefore, do what we tell you. Notice, by the way, he's speaking in a we. So that's him and the mouse in his pocket. Or he's speaking as if, basically, it's him and the, the church council now. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that the things in which we're informed concerning you are really nothing, but that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. Wow, did you see what happened here? Prove to them that you're still religious. Now understand, there's this part that can, you can be cocky for not doing this. And I mean this in this sense. If you were raised in a church where everybody does wear ties, and by the way, please understand, I don't have a problem with that. If you really think you're blessing God by dressing up, man, as far as I'm concerned, do it. But it's not going to bring you closer to God because he does have a dress code and it's not that. What it does say is put off the old man, put on the new man and be clothed with Christ and covered in love. That's your new ensemble. And if you come in a three-piece anything, but you don't come dressed like that, you are not properly dressed. But on the other side of it, if you're in a church where everybody's kind of dressing like that, don't come in in a pair of tatted jeans and showing off all your tats. Now, unless the Lord really make that clear, because you've offended people before you got there, and they may not listen to you. But this is beyond just trying not to offend a group of people. I mean, let me say it this way. Could you imagine? It's like, okay, there you are, and you're just kind of getting off at Archway, and you're going to go preach at a church there, and you've got a big Chelsea jacket on. Exactly how well is that going to play out? I mean, you've already lost people before you showed up. And you kind of get the idea. But this is much more than just try not to offend people here. This is like, look, at you're going to need to do some stuff here to let them know that you really are still doing all the religious stuff. Which is odd because Paul showed up for the, the feast. Which is, by the way, what a good Jewish boy does. You get that? Okay, so are you, are you kind of like with me in this and you kind of go, okay, but wait a minute, what is this whole, they're taking a vow and they get to shave their heads and, well, I thought skinheads were actually anti-Semitic. How does that work? I mean, just, you know, you kind of, what does that mean? Where does that play out? Well, let me take you there for a second so you can get the idea of what God wants in that. Go in your Bibles to Numbers, that's the fourth book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 6. <coughs> Numbers 
And we're going to see the vow that God makes clear that involves sacrifice and shaving your head and the whole bit. Whole bit. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm going to read, by the way, if, just so you know, I'm just going to read through the chapter, 21 verses. And as I do, see if there's a specific word that stands out, okay? Now, I'm only doing this to wet your whistle. If you want to get into greater detail on this, you know where it's at now. But see if you could kind of pick out at least the key word in these 21 verses. This is what it says in Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man, notice, or woman, ladies, do you see that in there? Consecrates an offering to take a vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar nor from, from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. He shall, um, nor shall, neither shall he drink any grape juice nor any fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. First of three things that are required. Second, verse 5. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled in which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. That's the second of the the requirements, the third of the three, six and seven. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean either for his father or his mother for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. Now, the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. Now, if anyone dies suddenly, well, what about that? Would you think, well, wait a minute, if I'm not allowed to touch something dead, what if I'm next to great uncle Shimei and he keels over? Well, if anyone dies suddenly beside him, I'm in an elevator, a lift, and someone dies, and he he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head, and on the day of his cleansing, on the seventh day he shall shave it, on the eighth day, I'll bring two turtle doves, two young pigeons to the priest at the door of tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regarding to the corpse. He shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year of the trespass offering. But the former days will be lost because his separation was defiled. Verse 13. Now, This is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in the first year without blemish as a sin offering, one ram without blemish as a peace offering, basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord. With the basket of unleavened bread, the the priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair of his consecrated head and put it in the fire under which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. The priest then shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, an unleavened cake from the basket, uh, one unleavened wafer, and put them in the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. The priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They're holy for the priest. Together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering, after that the Nazarite might drink wine. 
This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord an offering for his separation. And beside that, whoever else his hand is able to provide according to the vow in which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. Do you kind of get the idea what the key word was? What was it? Separation. But notice, by the way, in it, the separation was, and don't miss this, look at verse 2, the vow of the Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord. Not separate himself from the world, although that's what he's going to do, but what he wants to do is separate himself to the Lord, and these are things that could get in the way of it. In the simplest sense, here are the three things. The first of them is that of luxury, because that's the kind of idea of grapes and grape juice and wine. They were all sort of symbols of luxury. And the idea is, we don't want to cover ourselves in convenience. We really would rather stay away from that. Second, by the way, is vanity. I don't want a razor to touch your head. And if you're trying to think, well, you know, that's the kind of a the long beard. It's kind of a cool thing for a Jewish person. Well, understand, that's like covering nothing. That's shaving nothing. That's no haircuts. That's nothing. And by the way, I've learned that a lot of some Semitic people, hair kind of grows like crazy after a period of time. Have you noticed that? It's like, and not to pick on it, but there's some people, it's like when your hair starts to grow, it just kind of grows in every direction. It's like your hair is escaping your head. And so the reason God's like, look it, I don't want there to be vanity involved. And the third thing, by the way, then is morality. I want you to stay away from the worldliness of death. By the way, of course, that plays in real heavy when we get to Samson, who will blow all three. But now the reason I say that is, here's the strange thing is that there is a wall now in the church, and the wall is between the religious and the new, the new people. The religious, in this case, were the older Jewish people, and then there's the new people who got saved that were Gentiles. Now, please understand, that can still happen in every church today, because we still have old rich and new rich. Think about this with me. Now, follow this. Let's say that there's a guy, and he was born, in, uh, you know, let's just say he was born in, in Hampstead, in one of those houses that they call in Billionaire's Row. And the guy, you know, he's like, he's never driven a day in his life. He knows how to talk without opening his mouth. Right. He knows the difference of caviar. He knows what a good wine versus a bad wine is, or whatever that means, and, you know, all that type of stuff. And he knows how to talk. Right. And, you know, and somebody drives him everywhere, and he knows how to shoot. And, you know, and he has people that dress him. And, they, and that, so that's one person. Then there's another guy from East Louisiana named Buck. Buck just won the lottery. But now, he's got just as much money as Henry over here. But, he's going to spend it a little bit different. Buck's going to get a big truck. Big truck with big wheels. The kind where you have to climb up a ladder. Mm. You start that thing, every house rattles. This guy over here now. Now, in the end of it all, this guy, he's going to get a car, something he can drive over people. This guy is just more than happy to go. He's just happy where he's at. Now, over here on the other side of it, now what happens is, is that now this guy, he's not going to buy an Armani suit. What in the world would a guy in East Louisiana do with a suit? He's going to buy more jeans. Now I have three jeans, three pairs of jeans. Now I've got 12 pairs of jeans. And they're nice. Now I love my jeans. My coveralls. Mm, I'm looking good. I might buy a full set of teeth. And, and so there's, there's our friend Buck. Now the reason I say that is, in the end of it all, the two of them may be just as rich as each other, but their presentation demands you to assume this one's richer. Does that make sense? Here's the strange thing. This person over here could get broke and we wouldn't know it because they're so good at acting rich. Does that make sense? Now follow me on this. Landon was raised. Landon was raised in a godly home. 
Now, I don't mean that in any bad way. I mean that in the best of ways. He had a decent father who loved his mother. And her mother loved her father. Oh, isn't this nice? With standards and morals and those kind of things. As a matter of fact, Lennon was raised spiritually rich. He knows how to dress. He knows how to get there. Because that's the way the old rich are. And then there's some of us like Buck, like myself. I found Jesus at 19. Now, is Landon any richer than me? No. Am I any richer than Landon? No. The beauty is that both should be able to be in the same place. Now, we're each going to have our own strengths. But the beauty in something like that is to be able to bring both of those strengths to the table and say, how do we support each other? How do we encourage each other? Does that make sense? Because that becomes one of the walls in a church. But tell you another one, though. The wall of laity and leadership. There is none. Scripturally, there's either Christians that are obedient or there are Christians that aren't. Where do you fit? To be honest, I'm just trying to do what the Lord called me to. I'm loving it. Never for a moment have I not loved it. But to be honest, it isn't like God's got a hotline for me. That's Pastor Tony that I get put on hold when Billy Graham calls. But when you call, he puts you on hold for me. That doesn't happen. Either you're obedient or not. Does that make sense? And the cool thing about that is if that's for real, we stop thinking that everything should be done by the one guy up here. God called me to teach. I pray you agree with that, but even if you don't agree, it's not going to change my mind about it. I know what the Lord's called me to do, and I love to do it. Now, praise God you're there, because it looks less weird when there are people I get to talk to about it. My wife's kind of joked, if I actually go see now Sunday, she's going to paint pictures of people on a wall, and I'm just going to preach. She's going to put one person with her hand up, and now he just got saved. <laughs> you know? But in that, it's like, but look at, I will forever be new rich, in that sense of forever on earth, that part of the wall. Not weird doctrine, but you get the idea. But in, it, in this, understand that there's like, there should be no walls. Look who you're sitting next to. If you are sitting next to someone. You know? Okay, let's move through this, okay? Because look at what happens. Do what we tell you. They've taken a vow, pay for it. Pay for it, shave your head, do all those things. Now look at what the weird stuff. Can, can you imagine? Listen, don't miss this. What happened is somebody just came to Paul and said, dude, you're going to need to get your hair cut. Didn't know. Did you notice that's what they said? It's in church. Because we don't want to offend people. And I understand that. Okay, so, these days it's a lot easier for me. I grew up in the 80s, man. You know, guys had longer hair than girls. We looked like lions, man. We kept Aquanet in business. The scariest thing for us was a flame. But I also know what it's like. Now, now God's making it easy. I don't have to worry about getting a haircut. It's all falling out. But I can tell you this. I know what it's like to, to, to be at a place where it's like, look, at you come in with that kind of hair and... The reason I cut my hair, to be honest, was because I wanted to teach some kids that I really just had fallen for. And that was a big deal for me back then. Now I look back and think, how stupid. It was just vanity. So look at, do this. Would you do this? Appease these people. Would you just go ahead and do this? Now understand, Paul will tell us that as much as relies on you, do whatever can make peace. So I can see Paul doing this to make peace. He'll tell the Romans that, by the way. But he says this, when the seven days are ended, then, 
I want you, by the way, that means there's a week of this. Paul, now understand, while Paul's doing this and he's shaving his head and he's not touching grapes and he's not touching dead bodies and, you know, he's trying to make sure that he lets his face and his hair grow. I mean, your head is everything from your neck up. So, you know, you just hair's growing out everywhere. He's looking a bit like Einstein or whatever the case is. But all of, the, all of this stuff is happening. And when all of this stuff is happening, what are we doing that we were part of Paul's posse? We're waiting for Paul to get beat up. And he isn't yet. But remember, Paul knows that he's going to get worked somewhere in all of this. And what Paul's doing, understand, everything that Paul's doing in Scripture at this point is to try to keep somebody in church happy. Did you notice that? Now understand, God doesn't want us to think we're sort of mavericks. We can do whatever we want, man. You have to just follow me, man. Dude. But look, at, in the end of it all, we need to be sensitive enough to what does stumble people. Because we want to love them enough not to stumble them. But in this, Paul's gone. He's, now, can we agree? Paul's gone out of his way as much as necessary to try to keep people happy. Because he really wants to show that. And this is what it says. Verse 27. Now, on the seven days are almost ended, the Jews... Notice, it's not even fully ended yet. The seven days of this vow, he hasn't even made it the whole time. He's close. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Would you have thought after doing this vow, this would be the last moment that somebody would have a problem with you in church? But it is. Let me explain and we'll go through our text. Okay, let's go to the next slide, Lauren, would you please? This is the temple precinct as we best know it. For what it's worth, the Talmud says, and we would expect the Talmud to say something like this, that there were seven measures of beauty given to the world, and the temple was given six of them. Originally, originally, this whole building, by the way, this whole building was roughly about the size of this little area and a little bit back. That was about what it is, by the way, what it was. Roughly somewhere between 44 and 8,800 square feet. Somewhere in about 20 B.C., Herod the Great, seeking to kind of befriend the Israel nation, so to speak, built this whole little thing here, leveled this mountain. By the way, I don't know if you can see this. This is a mountain. He leveled this mountain. And when he did, by the way, he had slaves do it. <clears throat> now this is 1.2 million square feet. It's a big remodel. Are you with me so far? Now, in that, by the way, this right here is the Antonio Fortress. This, by the way, used to be originally just a little spot here where the high priest held his clothes for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And what happened is they had originally built something here with the idea that the high priest could be elevated, and that was what he thought in importance. But in the end of it all, what happened is it became the place where they could watch what took place in the temple precinct to make sure that, uh, that no problems happened against Rome. So basically, they were kind of, that was their perch. Does that make sense? Sort of a guard towers is the idea. And that's, of course, where people are going to see. This is going to become important and where we're going to see in a moment here. So this courtyard area here is called the Court of the Gentiles. And, of course, many of you might be familiar with that. By the way, if you were to look at the Wailing Wall today, all it is is it's a bit of this, this construction wall, and it's basically about this little square here. That's it. This is over seven stories tall. The Dome of the Rock, as you see at the Shrine of Omar today, if you put that thing on there, it would basically look like about, and I'm, I kid you not, the size, of the, the size of this laser. That would be it. To give you an idea how big and grandiose the temple was then compared to what it is today. It would just be like that. Now, interesting, by the way, because that temple is built here. 
So it's interesting because there's some, some conjecture in regards to the area of building, because it talks about a wall that separates the holy and profane, that we know that a temple has to be built in the last days because the Antichrist has to present it. It's fairly likely, unless they just blow it up altogether, that they might um, just build a wall here and still allow this because this area is called today the, the Dome of the Spirits. It's actually not where the shrine is. You can literally build both buildings next to each other. Not that I recommend it, but that's what could happen. Now, does that make sense so far? Okay, so here we are, you walk through and you kind of go into like this kind of, one of these kind of entrances. There's entrances on those sides as well. And as you go through those entrances, you get into this area here. Next slide, please. Now, I'll go back first. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. Go back. Um, if you can see, you probably can't see it here. There's some walls right here. That particular thing's a wall. Is there a slide beyond that one, Lauren? There we go. Um, if you can see, see these walls right here? Those walls separate. Well, that's what a wall's supposed to do. These little areas right here have a sign. And that particular sign says this. And now those of you who might be familiar with ancient Greek, basically what this says is anybody, anyone who is not Jewish that steps past this wall will, have, will be guilty for their own death. In other words, you earned it. The idea is, is nobody that could walk through this wall could walk through this, go beyond this wall and not be Jewish. Go back to that, that last slide, if you would, Lauren. So what happens is when you go through this, now you have the court of the women, the court of the men, or the court of the Israelites, and ultimately the court of the priests. So, I mean, you have to be Jewish to get through all of that. So you kind of get the idea here? So Jew, or Gentiles could go beyond, behind this wall, but beyond this wall are only, Gentile, are only Jews. This sort of makes sense? I kind of slide. Now listen, by the way, listen to this verse from Ephesians. Listen to this. In Ephesians 2.14, listen to what Paul says. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Did you get it? Paul refers to this. He says, when Jesus came to die for us, he broke this wall down so that whether you are black or white, rich or poor, educated or not, you know, Turkish or Greek or Arab or Israeli or whatever, everybody has the same access and that access is Jesus Christ. What's interesting is he wrote that to the Ephesians. Are you with me on that? Why is that so interesting, perhaps? Look at what happens next. Verse 27, and we're now to the end of this. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, which I remind you, go back to that first slide, Lauren. <coughs> no, before that one, the one that was the map. Yeah, um, I'm, yeah, back one more. There we go. Asia, I remind you, is Asia Minor. That's that area here with Ephesus and all of this area here. Okay, and it says here, <coughs> excuse me, that the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, this place. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they suppose that Paul had brought him into the temple. Get this, they see Paul hanging out with a Gentile believer, disciple, in Jerusalem, this city, and from that they muster up the whole idea of this rumor that Paul had brought him in beyond that wall. 
Do you get it? What's interesting is, it was the Jews from Asia. Well, let me remind you, the capital of that area is Ephesus. Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, there's no wall now for believers. But Paul didn't do that, it appears. It didn't appear that Paul did that because he still res- seemed to respect this particular law. But when it came to coming to Jesus, it really didn't matter. So what happened? Remember, Paul's on the defense. He's just trying to keep people happy. So Paul's taking this vow. He's kept away from all of these things. He's paid the, the fees for all of these other guys. He's trying to make people happy. And lo and behold, all Paul's doing now is he's in the temple. You'd think that would be a safe place. He's at church. And it's there people freak out. And they make up this story. That guy brought in the wrong person into this place. How did the people respond? The whole city, all the city, verse 30, was disturbed. And by the way, I tend to think of it in both ways. You know how you look at a person who's kind of mentally out there, we call him disturbed? Well, I think that's where they were. The people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, <coughs> Excuse me. and immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison, that the Jerusalem was an uproar. Now go back to that picture, if you will, of the temple. There we go. And again, remember, here's where he is. He's responsible, by the way, for a thousand soldiers. And he's up here now watching this whole crazy thing that's happening. Now, it says, <coughs> excuse me. Now as they were seeking to kill him, verse 31, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. Why centurions? Because these are guys responsible for 100 soldiers apiece. These guys are good soldiers. In other words, he thinks he's got a big riot on his hand. He's got the riot police with him. And they ran down to him. When they saw the commander of the, of the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. It tends to happen when the police show up sometimes. Then the commander came near and took him. And the commander commanded him to be bound with two chains and asked him who he was and what he had done. Some of the multi- so he's asking the crowd, what, what did this guy do? Some of the multitude cried one thing, some another. Sounds like Ephesus, doesn't it? Interestingly enough. So they could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult. He commanded them to be taken into the barracks. Now when he reached the stairs, there's stairs right over here, by the way. When he had reached the stairs, <coughs> excuse me, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. And now it's happening, isn't it? Just like it had been said. Chains and tribulation await you. Here it is, Paul, a week later. The multitude and the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, Oh, you can speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? Well, you know, with this kind of rebellion, you kind of think the guy really must be a pretty bad dude. Paul's like, No, 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 no I'm not that guy. Paul had said, and I could develop that, but for the sake of time, it's irrelevant um, for the, our key point. Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. I implore you, please let me speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great silence. And he spoke to them in Hebrew, which means now he's going to speak more than likely in a language the guard doesn't understand. And where is he? He's got center stage and he's up here. And as he's up here, he's speaking in a way so that all these people can hear. And he waves his hand. And as he waves his hand, the whole people get silent. And he says, he says to them, 
Oh, you're going to have to come back next week. It's the end of the chapter. All right, so. <laughs> okay, listen, beloved. <coughs> I know that was cruel, but I had to do it. Okay, now follow me on this as we go into prayer. In this room, there is a wall that every one of us needs to get through, and it's the wall of God's wrath that we have earned by our own filth, by our own wrongdoing. And the good news is, God is actually offering you free entrance in, tearing down that wall, but paying for it on the death of Jesus Christ, so that you can come to Christ boldly. And you're no longer, first and foremost, Italian, or Irish, or French, or American, or whatever in the world you are or think you are. But you are, first and foremost, is His. We have a daughter we've adopted from China. But she's not, first and foremost, Chinese to me. She's, first and foremost, mine. She's my daughter. And whether she were black or green or white, whether she were tall or thin, whether she had pink hair, red hair, blue hair, black hair, or no hair, she's my daughter, first and foremost. And for the 30 or so million children or so in China, she's mine. And for the billion or so children in the world, she's one of the two that I call mine. And it doesn't matter beyond that, first and foremost. And when you came to Christ, you became His. Not English, British, UK, Irish, French, Maltese, Jamaican. You're His. And isn't it cool that we can look at each other and say that? You're his, I'm his. Man, if what there is 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 something else and it's Jesus plus, I've learned anything you add to the plus is going to separate you from that. There's going to be a wall. Anytime it's Jesus plus, the plus is a wall. If that's a pet doctrine, it's going to be a wall. Jesus plus, do you really believe this is when he's coming back? Jesus plus, do you really believe that he handpicks some? Jesus plus, do you speak in tongues? Jesus plus, you know a wall goes up. Jesus plus, this is how we dress here. Jesus plus, this is how we do our duties. Jesus plus. But Jesus, we all stand equal. It's the only thing where we can stand equal at the playing field. All guilty and then all made innocent. Because at the cross... It's just Jesus. And so when people pop by and they say, this is the most eclectic group of people, I'm like, I pray the whole church would be like this and bring him on. Bring more. Bring crazier. Well, I should be careful how I say that. But, you know, bring greater variety because in the end of it all, the one thing we have in common is the most important thing and that's Jesus. Do you have him? Has your walk somehow gotten to be Jesus and, Jesus and the old rich, Jesus and the new rich, Jesus and the Jamaican Jesus, the black Jesus, the surfer Jesus. The, he's God. He could be the floating green Jesus. It doesn't matter to me. He died for my sins. And beloved, as we go to prayer now, I just pray for a fresh appreciation 
for just Jesus. He said, you search the scriptures, thinking by them you possess eternal life, but these are the ones that testify of me. It's like what you think the law is going to make you right. The law shows us we're guilty, so the law says we need Jesus. Every event out there right now is going to testify of one, two, one or both of two things, and that is man's evil and needs a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior. Let's say, how do you explain the Holocaust? Man's evil and needs a Savior. How do you explain what those priests did in those places? Man's evil and needs a Savior. How do you explain how somebody that used to beat up people isn't anymore? Because Jesus is the Savior. How do you explain how people that are radically awful have now turned into kinder people, loving people, changing more into something that they're even amazed by? Because Jesus is the Savior. Not a Savior, but the Savior. Friends, as we pray, can we get a fresh appreciation for just Jesus? You pray with me? God, I thank you. Thank you so much for the privilege of being able to come here and study your word and enjoy you. Thank you for carrying me, Lord. Thank you for being the one. Jesus, thank you for being the one Savior of the world. That there is no other name given among men, heaven and earth and below the earth, no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And you've told us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, we recognize that you want us standing at the altar and saying, I do. And saying, I do. Lord, you want us in that place where you draw us into that deeper and intimate and fruitful relationship with you, God. And I pray tonight that if there be any walls, Lord, any walls of personality, any walls of nationality, any walls of whatever in our identity, Lord, please, in this room, make us one. There's one Spirit, one Savior, one God. And you're it. Thank you. Let our walks not be Jesus plus. Because if you're perfect, then adding to it makes it less perfect. So Lord, please, forgive us for where we've developed whatever it is. Lord, and prided ourselves in those other things. When in the end of it all, Lord, the ways that you make us unique only further testify that you were the God and Savior of all by bringing such diversity into a place and allowing you to reinvent us all. Thank you. Thank you for saving black people and white people and rich people and poor people and educated people and ignorant people. and, and, And just thank you for saving people. The world. Lord, please don't let us build up any walls other than the ones you've clearly made. The wall, Lord, that says that all men are sinners and we were all on that same side. But Jesus, you are the gate. And that your death and resurrection, Lord, we acknowledge that you've allowed us to be in with you and you've torn down the middle wall of separation between any and every human being that cries out to you as their Savior and Lord. So thank you, Lord. I want to thank you for what you're doing in this fellowship. And I openly acknowledge, Lord, that this is such a beautiful place where we can be that diverse. And yet in that, we're all equal at the cross, guilty and and deserving of, of hell. But God, you have granted us grace. And as you have... Now, Lord, we stand completely forgiven, radically reinvented, and with unique calls on our lives. 
Make us obedient students and servants. As you move us to student and from student to servant, make us disciples, make us servants. Would you gauge our love and obedience by how it is you live through us to the least and the last and the lost? And in that, Lord, please, make this fellowship a fellowship of people who are glad to be ravished by the blood of Christ, by your blood, made new. The Father called your children. So here we are, we're yours. And in that, we just say thank you. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. The wicked, horrible, evil, bloody, miserable, torturous cross. And for dying for us there, paying for the sins of the whole world, and rising again to give us new hope, new life. So what we are now are new inventions as we are in you. Thank you that we all can be that together. Even the uniqueness of the way that you create us to be that, which now brings you glory and draws other people to you. We say thank you. Use us, God, in that uniqueness of our callings and the uniqueness of what you're doing and the invention you're creating through us, the reinvention of us. Use us now, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.